welcome into another episode of the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast. I'm Scott Agnes. Well, the Pacers are 46 and 31, a season best 15 games over 500, and soon we'll be wrapping up this four game road trip out west. And joining me from his hotel in Denver, where the Pacers will face the Nuggets coming up on Tuesday, is the TV voice of the Pacers, Chris Denary. Chris, how are things on this long road trip for you? Uh, it's, it's, you're right. It's a long road trip. I mean, the weather here in Denver is beautiful. I mean, it's hard for me to believe when I think about it. I always think of Denver being cold, and it's 70 degrees today, and I know what it's been back in Indianapolis. Oh, but yeah. um, this has been a long road trip. We left last Monday. Um, it's not the longest road trip of the year as far as games are concerned because there was a five-gamer earlier, but it is the longest in in length because there are no back-to-backs. You had the extra off day in L.A., so it's about a and, – and we're flying back – on Wednesday. We're staying after the game here in Denver on Tuesday night. So basically it's a 10 day road trip, uh, come home, have a night at home. And then the team plays golden state on Thursday. And then we fly right after the game to Toronto, play the Raptors on Friday, uh, fly after the game to Charlotte, play the, um, Hornets on Sunday. So I think it's out of a two week period, 14 days, I'll have been home one day or one night. So I, I don't know if I've ever experienced this in my 12 years uh, doing Pacers TV play-by-play that we've had this long a stretch on the road. Yeah, that's a, such a challenge, and I think maybe to an extent you get used to it, even though it's tough probably certainly being away from family, being away from your routine at home, and being away from your, your family, especially on a Easter weekend. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I'm very lucky now. My my kids are all older and grown, two of them out of the house, and, and one's a sophomore in college. And my wife has plenty of friends and plenty of things going on. I think I think the, the two uh, entities that miss me the most are probably the dogs because <laughs> yeah. I take them to uh, Dunkin' Donuts virtually every morning when I'm at home. Yeah, that game day uh, so, routine, right? Yeah, so they can get their pup cups and I can get my morning coffee. So uh, I'll owe them a lot when I get back. A couple of years ago, Sean Wendell, the head sports performance for the Pacers, um, really changed things up as far as travel goes for you guys on the road. And just example would be if you are in Miami for a road game and you're flying to Charlotte, you might stay in Miami overnight rather than going to your next destination and getting there at 2, 3 in the morning. Have you felt that? Do you notice a difference um, in your body and adapting to that throughout a season? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, I think anytime you can limit yourself in getting in at two or three in the morning on a regular basis, it, it does help. Now, I'm also of the ilk that if you if you have enough off days, and we did uh, between the trip from Sacramento to L.A., we did fly right after the game. Now, it was only about an hour flight from uh, Sacramento to LAX. But there's something for me, though, about getting to that next city – um, you, you go to bed and then you wake up. And if it's an off day, you feel like you have the entire day. When you fly the, the, the next day, it sort of chops your day up. But I do think, I mean, and, and granted, I'm a lot older, a lot older than the players. Um, I do think it makes all the difference in the world in the fewer times that, that your body clock 
is having to deal with those middle-of-the-night arrivals and departures. Yeah, I think that would completely throw you off, especially as you're going from time zone to time zone, Eastern to Pacific, and then there in Denver. Let's talk about so many things with this Pacers group, and we'll start with where they've gotten to. And at this point, one of the big things Chris said has impressed me is that they've outperformed kind of all expectations to this point easily at 46 wins. And there is a slim chance, but a chance, they could reach 50 wins this season, second time since 2004 if they did do that. Yeah, that would be a remarkable number, Scott, for um, you know where this team was predicted. I, I was just online, and I, I think Dakota Armstrong of the Star is has a story about potential Coach of the Year candidates and why, why is Nate McMillan not getting more um, talk? Um, when you think about Brad Stevens has done a great job, uh, navigating the injury si- uh, situation with Gordon Hayward, Kyrie Irving. Uh, we know that Mike D'Antoni in Houston has outperformed uh, Toronto, Utah. There are a lot of good coaches and a lot of good stories out there. But right now with five to play, the Pacers were picked by most people to win 31 games. That's at least the Vegas number. Sure. And they're at 46. That's plus 15. Um, so it, it, it's really been... Um, neat to see. I think the other thing that maybe people haven't touched on is how good this team has been on the road. They're 20 and 18. It's only the sixth time in Pacers history that they will have 20 or more wins on the road. That's in the NBA. So that's, that's some 40 years of basketball. And if they get one more win, it would be the fourth time they've had a winning record in franchise history on the road. So I think those are notable accomplishments when you look at the past history of this franchise. And, you know, the franchise has been very good. What is it, 23 of the last 29 years in the playoffs? Uh, But to do what they've done on the road is a big reason why they've won 46 games. These end-of-the-season awards are so challenging. There's some that are very obvious to me. There are others that I, I contest. For example, the MVP conversation. For me and you, our criteria for the award may be very different. Is it most outstanding player, or is it the most valuable to their team? I think there should be two awards, the most outstanding performer, or really the offensive player of the year, and then the MVP. What about you? Yeah, I don't disagree with that because there there is a difference between outstanding player and putting up significant numbers and who is the actual most valuable player to his team. Clearly, Victor Oladipo is the most valuable player to the Pacers, and I would argue that is one of the most valuable players in the league. And I would also argue that LeBron James, who is an outstanding player, uh, probably each and every year is one or two as the most valuable player with the Cavaliers. If you take LeBron off the Cavs, they're the, not a know, playoff team. Is not even, they're not even close. No. You could argue that with, with Houston as well, but I still think Houston has enough people there that uh, they could still be a playoff team in the Western Conference. So that it is a good point, and everybody evaluates each award differently. Um, they have different criteria that they use. Um, I, I noticed somebody the other day when they were – listing their votes for um, executive of the year, coach of the year, most improved player. Now, most improved, uh, I think it's been a whitewash as far as Victor is concerned. I, I, would I agree not with you. Seen, yeah. I have not seen anybody that, that has listed anybody else as the, the top candidate for 
most improved player. But when you go to executive of the year, I saw somebody that had Kevin Pritchard not even in the top three, and they had Sam Presti <laughs> ahead of Kevin Pritchard. And my argument would be, why are you penalizing? Ke- you know, Kevin made the trade, and at this point, the trade for the Pacers has outperformed what the trade has done for Oklahoma City. It's not a knock on Paul George. He's an outstanding player. But what the Pacers have done with Oladipo and Sabonis is a far cry from what I believe Paul George has done in Oklahoma City. So, But again, everybody has um, uh, their own parameters. Everybody has their own criteria. And at the end of the day, when you have 100 or some voters, you would think that collectively they would come up with the right answer even though people individually might you might not agree with with how they see things yeah off the top of my head for example with the coach of the year I see McMillan being in that bunch and certainly in the conversation it's hard for me to overlook what Boston and Brad Stevens has done with undermanned all season from game one Gordon's out Kyrie's been out significant time now they're they have a laundry list right of injuries Daniel Tice um, Marcus Smart and they very well might end up the top team, certainly at least second in the Eastern Conference. And then out west, you could go Houston, although how much of that is their star power and how much should you penalize or not a coach for just having outstanding talent around him too? I don't know. It's tough. Yeah, that's where I think I think if you look at the west, you have to give a lot of credit to Quinn Snyder. Pacers saw them twice, beat them without Rudy Gobert. Um, in Salt Lake City, and then Utah played as well as anybody's played at Bankers Life Fieldhouse this year, and they've done that with with losing Gordon Hayward. Now, if somebody could say, well, they have Donovan Mitchell, who is one or two uh, as far as Rookie of the Year, I would still counter and say somebody's had to develop him. Somebody's had to give him the opportunity. Someone's had to integrate him into the system and and I believe Quinn Snyder's got to be right there at the top of the list as well. Pacers here will have six of their final eight games on the road, which is quite amazing. And I was surprised, too, of how the Pacers played. One of their more impressive wins of the season has to be that win against the Clippers because they've always seemingly struggled for whatever reason at Staples Center. And the team had three nights in L.A. leading up to it, which is always tricky when you involve NBA teams like that. Yeah, I think this is a very focused team, though. It's a very mature team that understands what their responsibility is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I really never worried about that. I mean, I thought the the day off that everybody had, um, no matter what you did, I, I, a bunch of us, uh, Jeremiah Johnson and Ken Softman, our pregame producer, we went to the Dodger game. Uh, different people did different things, and I think it was good for everybody to just get away for a day because since the All-Star break, since mid-February, the Pacers have basically played every other day. There have not been many off days uh, for players, coaches, or staff members. So um, I think this team knows what's at stake. I, I think uh, they want to prove um, all the naysayers uh, that they were wrong. And, and so I, I never really worried that uh, you know things would get in their way. I thought the clip the Clippers just jumped out to a really good start on Sunday. But like we've seen for most of the year, yeah, it's a the familiar Pacers thing. always yeah, they always fight back. Whether they win that game or not, uh, I knew that they'd be there in the end, but but this has been a team that has found ways to win in, in those situations on a regular basis. Has their resiliency, has that been one of the 
more impressive things as a collective group that we've seen from this group. We all know the stat 11 and 1 in games decided by three points or less. And that one, you kind of have to explain a little bit, right? The one was Bogey just throwing it away. And while it, it's recorded as a loss, that very well should have been a win. Plus, this team hasn't lost in overtime in their two tries. Th- that's telling to me, especially for a group that's so fresh, so new together, how quickly they came together. Yeah, and a game that's not even counted in that number is the overtime win against Denver that ended up to be a 10-point win, though the Pacers had to go on a 20 nothing run, 8 nothing to end the regular uh, portion of the game, and then 12 nothing to start overtime. So even if you want to say games decided by three points or less and overtime, they'd be 12-1. and one. Wow. Um, and, and their ability to also to win those games five points or less. They have 16 wins. They're 16-8. and eight in games decided by five points or less. So I think that says a lot about the consistency of this team, their ability uh, to process the moment and at the same point hit shots because it is a make or miss league and you're going to be judged, especially in the final two to five minutes of a close game. Can you get the job done? And clearly they've been able to do that this year. Big picture. One of the things I got to commend Kevin Pritchard new president in his first season taking over for Larry Bird and what he's been able to do. He wrote a book about it, but building a winning and successful culture. That speaks to some of the chemistry and how quickly they've come together, I think. And then also the fit and personality. And that was the real struggle I felt last season. It was was a group of guys, none of them that were not likable by any means or that didn't get along. They just didn't mesh well or fit or play off one another well. Whereas even a guy like Trevor Booker or a guy like veteran like Al Jefferson, you see him on the bench having a good time. And if his name's called, he'll step up. If not, he understands the type of role. And he, I was impressed. He was like, look, I'm 30-plus years old. I'm earning a great play check, and I'm still playing basketball. I have a nice life. I thought that perspective was was interesting. Yeah, and Trevor Booker did his homework, and the Pacers did their homework as well. I, I know there were some other players that they looked at, but they did not feel that they would fit the Pacers' culture or the locker room. And they knew that Trevor Booker would. And I think Trevor Booker did his homework on the Pacers. I mean, he had some other opportunities uh, to head elsewhere, but he looked at the makeup of the Pacers team. He had played against them when he was in Brooklyn. Um, he played against uh, the Pacers culture, even back you know, when he was with Washington. But he really felt that this was a group that he wanted to be a part of. And, and I think that's very important. And I think that's one of the things you're right, Scott, when you look back at last year, it, they were good guys, but the good guys for some reason did not mesh well together. This is a team um, I'll be going down to the lobby on a road trip and you'll see 15 guys ha- hopping in Ubers or cabs to go to dinner together. I don't know if I've ever seen that before. And that tells you they like being around each other, not just on the floor, but off the floor. Yeah, we heard about that during the preseason, and, and that's very typical early on for them to do that. But yeah, it's impressive to see them at this point in the season wanting to spend more time together, especially on the road when maybe a significant other's there, or they're maybe tired of one another after being with each other every single day for the last you know four or five months. Yeah, it's <laughs> uh, it's something that you just don't see a lot of. Um, and uh, I, I think that's been most impressive. And it's not something that is forced. It's not something that, um, you know, one player saying, hey, we need to do this. It's not the coaches. It's not the front office. This is a collective group that decides this is what we want to do. 
and this is how we want to spend our time together. How do you think about how this team has responded to situations when things haven't necessarily gone their way, right? Everyone was quick to criticize a guy like Miles Turner when so many factors went into him for a little stretch where he wasn't his best. Yet I would argue this entire team individually, everybody not only has played their role to a T, but they've done a great job of increasing their numbers. A guy that doesn't get talked about a ton, Chris, is Darren Collison coming in. His three-point percentage leads the league. And at one point, he was flirting with the 50-40-90 club, which is elite company. Yeah, he was so excited to come back. I, I talk a lot to Darren when we're on the road. Um, you know, he's one of the older pacers. He was here back in my early days, uh, starting as the play-by-play voice and and, and I'm really happy for a guy like him because he's a very talented player. Um, he wanted to be in a situation where he could win. Uh, that's something he had not experienced the last three years in Sacramento. And I think to be able to have this happen, um, one is indicative of the type of player that he is and the type of character that he has. I, I think I go back to the end of February. I, I really think the turning point in the season was – the two-game losing streak to start a road trip in Atlanta and Dallas. Um, two non-playoff teams. The Dallas loss I understood because when we got there, uh, that was after uh, the sexual harassment charges against the front office came out. That was after Mark Cuban was levied with the hefty fine for talking about tanking. And talking to the Dallas people that night, they felt that night was an important night for the franchise to have some success. And I think the players felt it. And I've said all along, I, I think the Dallas Mavericks have a lot more talent um, and are a much better team than their record has shown. Part of that is they've not been able to finish games. If you look at their record in, in games decided by 10 points or less, you know, at one point they had 29 losses. Well, if you flip you know, 10 of those to wins, they're knocking on the door for a playoff spot. Then the, the Wednesday night game, Atlanta came out hungry and uh, just, you know, took it to the Pacers. And then you're looking at a stretch where you've got uh, at Milwaukee, um, at Washington, Milwaukee, uh, and, and a bunch of tough games coming up. And all of a sudden, you could see things spiraling uh, in a bad way. And, and you lose two in a row, and all of a sudden it becomes five in a row and six in a row. And now you're down in seventh or eighth, and you're trying to hold off Charlotte and Detroit for a playoff spot. But what did the Pacers do? They came back with three straight wins over the weekend, the win in Milwaukee, the win in Washington, and then the home win against the Bucks. I really think that was the turning part of the season. And then I think it made it much easier for this team to play than on the road at Boston, on the road at Philadelphia. I mean, if you think about that stretch in late February, early March, that's where the Pacers turn the corner, and that's why they are where they are. Yeah, it's a very much a determined group out here. The fact that this late in the season during a unfavorable portion of their schedule, remember they had to go to New Orleans rather than having three days between games, which looked early on to be a nice thing for them um, between L.A. games having that nice little break. But you guys have faced so many unusual circumstances. You mentioned the Mavs situation. Uh, what was it last year? Kobe announcing his retirement date. When you guys were out in Los Angeles, of course, the rim situation against the Clippers and then the rain delay in New Orleans. It's been a wild season for this group. Yeah, it's uh, there have been some strange things. And, and yeah, you're right about the rim situation. You were wondering how that was going to impact the game because all of a sudden the basket that you've been warming up at 
uh, you know, for about an hour and a half, all of a sudden had to be changed. Uh, but I think this team has been very resilient. Um, I, I think I talked to Nate McMillan, oh, you know, it's well over a month ago. We were leaving the building together, and um, I, I asked him about the year, and I said, this, this group just seems to fit what you're all about. And he said, I've never had more fun coaching. I think we saw that tweet the other night uh, from Miles Turner when he said, you know, this is the most fun he's ever had playing the game of basketball. Now, granted, he's only 22 years old. He hasn't played basketball <laughs> all that long, but he's played it long enough to know that he enjoys the group that he's playing it with. So um, I, I just think it's uh, you really have to enjoy these moments because – um, as good as it is on the floor, when you see it off the floor, you know there's the potential for something special. One of the big changes to the Pacers this season out on the St. Vincent Center court is the standings there plastered on the wall, and I think that's also interesting. Going back to my, my point about this being a determined group, Chris, is that they've been able to successfully thus far check off all those milestones that they've wanted to accomplish, right? Number one, prove everyone wrong, especially no one more than Miles Turner back in training camp who's saying, all right, you guys can keep saying that. We're going to surprise some people. Then they've now become a playoff team, reached the postseason now in 23 of 29 years, and now they're determined to have home court advantage, which I think would be critical, whether it's first round or second round at the least, right? Yeah, and I I think the other thing is is they've really caught the fancy of the city. I mean, I I think the... I think the atmosphere at Bankers Life Fieldhouse, especially the last month or so, uh, really two months, I mean, uh, has, has been outstanding. I mean, the fan base has reacted very well. Our TV ratings are way up. Good. Um, wherever you go, people are talking Pacers basketball. Um, I, I talked to some of the salespeople the other day, and they said, you know, back in the summer, we were making the calls trying to encourage people to come, and now their phones are ringing off the hook because people want to be a part of it. So all those are great things, and it's just a testament um, you know, to Kevin Pritchard and his staff for putting this group together, and then it's the coaching staff for figuring out a way to play, and then it's the players uh, for coming together and producing on the floor. So that's that's what being a team is all about. Everybody has to – um, give and and take and work together, and it's happened at all levels of the organization. And uh, you know, five games to go, forty six and thirty one. Who who would have thunk it? Uh, not just back in September or October, but back in July um, after the Paul George trade. When you get Victor Oladipo and Domas Sabonis. I mean, I had a number of national people that night when the trade was done text me that thought it was terrible. Terrible deal. Yep, Horrible course. deal. Didn't get any draft picks. You know, what? What couldn't you have gotten something better? And now those same people are saying this is one of the great stories that they've covered in the NBA and that they were absolutely wrong. So um, I don't think a lot of people have 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 said that on air nationally, they may say it privately, but that's all right. Um, I just assume the Pacers continue to fly a little bit under the radar. Yeah, they've always historically been better when they're the team being counted out or up against with their backs up against the wall, as they like to say, and not getting that national coverage. And I know for you, you guys benefit from that a little bit too with just surprisingly one nationally televised game this season. That's another thing. Darren Collison, I was talking to him after they clinched a playoff spot and he was like yeah nationally they don't know what we are they don't know what we're about they're going to learn though and 
they just really nationally, fans and maybe even some national media who don't come around Indianapolis, just haven't seen exactly what this group can do. Yeah, I mean, I think there's only been a couple games on NBA TV as well, maybe two or three max. And it's just like yesterday, was watching uh, ESPN and SportsCenter. I thought the Pacers-Clippers game was probably one of the most entertaining games of the day. And I waited around and never saw a highlight. And uh, it's just really easy. Uh, you know, it's not sexy uh, to not pay attention. I would argue that fact, though. I, um, you know, I really like Zach Lowe and, and all the stuff that he does. Uh, but I, I sort of gigged him earlier in the year. Mm-hmm, I remember uh, that. He, he, he picked the Pacers as the worst team to watch on league pass. He had the Pacers 30th out of 30. Uh, I think NBA.com had them 29 out of 30. Sports Illustrated had them, you know, this is going to be the most boring team in the world to watch. I, there, there's no question they're not a boring team to watch, not when you have Victor Oladipo, not when you have Lance Stevenson. Um, so it, it shows that uh, what people think, um, and, and these are smart people, but what people think, isn't always right, and uh, the Pacers have been able to uh, live up to what they thought they could do in the locker room. And you've been around this forever. What it also continues to prove is that predictions are worthless. I go with the Brian Windhorst stance, too, is no, I don't make predictions. I'll offer facts, offer things I've seen and observations I've made, but in the end, do any of us know whether Villanova or Michigan is going to win tonight? Not really. And do you know how this Pacers team or how that trade was going to work out? Not really. On paper, sure, it did look like maybe the Pacers gave up um, Paul George for without a draft pick. I could understand that reasoning, but I don't think any of us truly understood what kind of player Sabonis either was. Well, and it's also, I mean, it's what you say about stats. Stats and analytics are great. I mean, I use stats um, to broadcast. You use stats. I mean, it, it paints the picture of what you are to expect. But what about the game where you have a guy that's a 45% three-point shooter, averaging 18 points per game, and maybe he shoots uh, 46% from the field and he goes two for 12, right? What, what was the predictor that that player was going to have a bad night? It happens. Um, what stats provide is what is the average that that player is. You know, most really good players hit that average every night. There are some players that, let's say a guy averages 12 points per game. Um, you know, some nights he'll have 18, some nights he'll have six. Well, that's going to average 12 per game. Um, and so those numbers are a little faulty in how you predict what a player will do. And so that's the thing about numbers, and that's the thing about stats. They can only predict what might happen. They won't tell you what will happen. And you make a good point. I mean, in the national championship game uh, that we're all waiting for as we tape this, Michigan and Villanova, Villanova made 18 threes in the semifinal game. And so the expectation is is that Villanova to win – needs to make 18 threes again. Well, they've also won games where they've made three. Um, So it's the goofy thing about stats, but um, they are there to help us sort of analyze what we think might happen. couple quick reactions here as we wrap up the podcast. Do you think this Toronto team is for real? Should they be a team that's feared? Well, I think they're a lot different than they've been before because they've changed their offense. Uh, they're, They're more of a... Uh, a motion team, if you will, and they're more of an analytical team. Uh, DeMar DeRozan taking a lot more threes 
Um, they, they take less uh, two-point shots or mid-range shots, but it's, it's not as much isolation as it used to be. So what we're seeing this year is a Toronto team that we haven't seen in the past. Now, uh, do they go back to their old ways in the playoffs? Um, I still think they're a very talented team. The question might be, how does their young bench, how do their young players mm-hmm. um, react to the postseason? Um, so I, I, I like them. Um, I, I think they're a very good team. But again, we'll just have to wait and see because they have definitely had their struggles in the postseason. I mean, a couple of years ago, by all rights, the Pacers should have won that first round series and just weren't able to get it done. Yeah, Paul but, carried but, the team to game seven yeah, in Toronto. Right, right. So, um, but they're a really, really good team. Um, you know, I, I still think just because he's the best in the world, you have to worry about the Cavaliers. Um, I mean, LeBron's playing at such a high level. He seemingly can drag anybody along with him. Um, so I, I never rule him out. And, and if you think about it, uh, I mean, the Pacers have been eliminated four times from the playoffs because of LeBron, three times when he was with Miami and last season in Cleveland. So um, he, he's just he's a, he's a lot to handle. That's exactly where I was going to move on to the next one. I, I'm with you. You can't count out LeBron-led teams until they they prove that that's the case. I will not count them out. They're probably the team I think uh, everyone should still be most worried about in the Eastern Conference. If It's a big game, and the fact that LeBron in his 15th season has been able to put up the numbers he has, and with that group and a new group, that is impressed as well. Last thing as it relates uh, to jumping around here on the standings, the Spurs and that environment, all the craziness surrounding Kawhi. Have you felt or seen anything like this in your time covering the NBA? Because this is so unusual, it feels like, right? Well, it's unusual, and it's sort of unspurs-like. I mean, I think we've had issues with player injuries before. I mean, think about Derrick Rose missed a lot of time um, in Chicago, and there seemed to be, to me, some confusion on his recovery process between he and the team. Um, you know, Kawhi's been so good as uh, – uh, what MVP defensive player of the year, yeah. that type of category that um, it, it just, things have just gone so well for the Spurs over the last 20 years, five titles. Um, is this a chink in the armor that might forecast that good days are not ahead for the Spurs? Um, but I was looking, I think on Twitter the other day, somebody uh, posted what the numbers would be for Kawhi if he agreed to the extension and it was like started at thirty million and ended at forty seven million. Yeah, it'd, he'd be eligible for that supermax. Yeah, I don't know how he would turn that down, but it just does not seem like there's a good feeling between Kawhi and as Greg Popovich says, his group, <laughs> right, um, and the Spurs. Yeah, there seems like they're they're not on the same page. Maybe there's a little discourse, and rarely do you see the San Antonio team not win 50 games, not reach the playoffs, so they're going to make the playoffs, it appears, um, this season awfully close. We'll wrap up here with a couple questions that I got from Twitter. Of course, the first one is forecasting and predicting. What do you guys think Corey Joseph will do with his player option? This is from Sharon Vonberg. Um, you know, that's an interesting question. I mean, um, I know Corey's really enjoyed uh, being a part of the Pacers. And I think, uh, what uh, what is his contract for next year? Seven million or? Mm-hmm. Seven and a half, um, I think. Seven and a half million. Um, I, I really don't know. Um, I, I think a lot is made that 
um, just, you know, reading the tea leaves around the league is that, you know, people think there will be more money available in 2019, that the, the summer of 19 will have more free agent activity. So, um, you know, so much money was spent a couple of years ago in free agency. I mean, when we saw Solomon Hill and Yan Maimi, they cashed Monster. out. Yeah, yeah with big lottery out. type deals. And, and more power to them. I mean, I'm happy for those two guys. They're great guys. Um, I, I don't know what the, the money situation is around the league this year. Um, I, I'd love to see Corey come back. Um, I think he's been an essential part of this team. I think the one-two punch at the point guard position with D.C. and, and Corey has been solid. And I think what what the team did at the All-Star break and going to Kevin Pritchard and said, hey, keep us together. That was astounding. We, we, we believe in ourselves. And, and look at what's happened since the All-Star break. They've gone 13-6 and six. Um, since the trade deadline. They're you know, probably 18 and eight or whatever. Um, I, I'd love to see the bulk of this team come back uh, because I, I, I think there are great things ahead for this franchise and, and this group has sort of set the bar. Yeah, you almost really want to keep this this group together, but not knowing how it would go, Kevin Pritchard and the execs gave themselves great flexibility with only four guys certainly under contract for next season. That's... Um, when you play in the non-guaranteed type deals, and I would think you'd bring back Collison, you'd bring back Bogey, um, for example. But seven and a half for Corey, I don't know. There's not a ton of market, it doesn't seem like, as you said, out there. And the same goes for Thad Young. The thing I could see Thad wanting is to to lock up some uh, a longer type contract, right, for three years, $30 million type thing. I know you're pressed on time, Chris, so we'll move to a couple more. Bandith Keith wants to know, who had the best mother chicken of the year? <laughs> um, I only think we've gotten it a couple times from Quinn. Yeah, I mean Quinn's really held back on us. Uh, somebody asked me the other night with uh, the Victor block if that was elicited a smothered chicken, and it did not. Um, I- I'm going to need to ask him. I might have to tomorrow night on the air um, <laughs> say, "Hey, Quinn, what, what, what's been the deal with the smothered chicken?" Uh, I think Victor's had a couple of really good smothered chickens. They've just gone uncalled for by uh, Quinn. Yeah, I'm with you. We've seen Quinn tighten up what his criteria is for one of those that I think we're only getting two or three a year maybe. Last one, Darius wants to know how deep do you guys think this group can make it in the postseason? Again, another prediction, which I'm not a big fan of. Right now, I would say second round. How are you feeling? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I even think if this team does not have home court advantage in the first round, they are a real threat. Uh, to advance to the second round. And part of it de- depends on, you know, will there be, what will be the upset situation in the first round? Are teams toward the bottom, you know, right now, six, seven, and eight are Washington, Miami, and Milwaukee. Um, are any of those teams capable of upsetting one, two, or three? Um, I sort of look at this, um, Scott, as, you know, back in the 2011 12 season. When the Pacers, after they had yeah. made the playoffs against the Bulls the year before, uh, went 42-24, and 24. it was the lockout season, uh, beat Orlando in the first round, and then lost in six in the Eastern uh, Conference semifinals to Miami. That really set the table for the next two years when they went back-to-back Eastern Conference finals and they were the number one seed uh, in 13-14. This, this has the feel of a group that's going to be together for a while, the core for sure, 
And then, um, especially in the near future, I, I don't see a lot of changes made. Um, I, I think this is definitely a team that can get to the second round. And if you get to the second round, I believe anything can happen. Yeah, who knows? You might have several injuries that have altered the postseason like we've seen in previous years, and you just don't know matchups either. So, Chris, appreciate you taking the time. I know you guys are going to watch the uh, NCAA championship game tonight in Denver, and we'll see. Denver will be interesting. Historically, this Pacers team does not do well in Denver, not winning there in seven of their last visits for whatever reason. Yeah, this has been a tough place. I mean, it's Mile High City. It always seems like, too, in years past, the Pacers have come in here off a of back-to-back. And uh, so it, it, it will be interesting. They've had some injuries. Gary Harris won't play. Uh, he's out with a knee injury. Wilson Chandler is questionable. Um, but this is a huge game for them. They're only a game out of the eighth and final playoff spot in the West. But it was also a huge game for the Clippers as well. And the Pacers responded very well at Staples Center. So uh, really uh, looking forward to uh, Tuesday night against the Nuggets. And we'll be watching on Fox Sports Indiana. Thanks again, Chris. All right. Thanks, Scott. That's Chris Denary, the television voice of the Indiana Pacers. Watch him and Quinn Buckner, Jeremiah Johnson, as they televise all 82 regular season games for the Pacers this season on Fox Sports Indiana. And he's always very active on Twitter. It's been a very impressive season by this Pacers group, they have absolutely surprised everyone. And as we discussed on the podcast, they've got it done at home. So many big wins there. They're 3-0 and on this road trip. And they've had an outstanding season on the road where typically coaches going into a season just want to go 500 on the road and then win the majority of their home games. But this team already has 20 road wins with several more remaining on their schedule. And five games left, if they win four of them, they would have the second 50-win season since 2004. That would be a heck of an accomplishment. This has been the Vigilant Sports Pacers Podcast. If you haven't done so already, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Google Play to listen to new and archived episodes.